All right, good morning. So turn to John chapter 4. Turn to John chapter 4. And before I begin, um, if you don't already know, uh, so you guys know that, you guys know Tim Cartwright, our junior high pastor, right? Um, he, he's a big uh, Eagles fan, a Philadelphia Eagles fan. And so, so the last couple of years, he has flown out to Washington, D.C. to go to like the Redskins-Eagles game. And he's been trying to talk me into this to go with him. I'm a big Redskins fan. So um, I've said no the last two years just based on financial issues. So, um, but this year, um, I was able to use some miles to fly out there. So tomorrow night, if you turn on your television, uh, Tim and I will be at the Eagles-Redskins game, Monday Night Football. RG3's return, it's going to be awesome, and, uh, but here's the funny thing about this, is that Tim's an Eagles fan going into enemy territory uh, to go to a Redskins-Eagles game, and if you know Tim, Tim's kind of got a big mouth, and so um, I'm envisioning scenarios that could be very bad, so for example, if you turn on the television and you see a fight breaking out, Tim's probably somewhere in the middle of that, um, I'm also envisioning a scenario where I'm tailgating with Tim Cartwright and his Eagle friends, and I've got my brother who's a Redskins fan with me, and um, the dilemma of if other Redskins fans are talking smack to Tim, and Tim is talking smack back to them, and a fight breaks out, what should I do, okay? So I want to get a vote on this, so tell me what you think I should, should I let them uh, beat Tim to a pulp, or raise your hand if if that's the option you think I should go with, or... The other option is, should I defend my friend even though he's being crazy? So, so more, of you say, more of you say I should defend him. Is that or Let me revote this. All right. If I should let him take a beating, raise your hand. Now there's more people. That's what I was kind of hoping for was that, that response. Okay, so I'm assuming the rest of you think that I should, um, I should intervene. So, um, but when I, when I first decided to go to this game, um, I went on StubHub and tried to find some, uh, some cheap tickets and realized there is no such thing as a cheap NFL ticket. And so, um, my brothers kind of helped me out with that part of it, uh, thank God. But, um, but here's the crazy part about it, though, is I was looking on StubHub and I'm like, there are tickets for tomorrow night's game, like in the thousands of dollars, just for a regular, regular season, Monday night game, several thousand dollars you can buy some of these tickets. This is, not the, this is like one game in an entire season, and it's that much money for some of these people willing to pay that, right? And so we, in our culture, this, this time of year especially, um, we are just, and this includes me, I'm not calling, I'm calling myself out here on this, but we are so wrapped up in this world, in the, in, in the sports world, that we will pay huge amounts of money for just to see a game, a front row seat or a 10th row seat to a game, right? So I want to ask you a question. If you could transport yourself somehow back in time and there was a ticket available where you got to see an interaction between Jesus and one other person um, in the time that he spent on earth, um, what would you pay for that ticket? I would imagine that you would probably pay, and I would pay, quite a bit of money, right? Like I would pay a decent amount if I could transport back in time and actually sit there as a front row seat, like a fly on the wall, and just peer into a conversation 
between Jesus and someone else, right? I'd pay a lot of money for that. But here's the really cool thing about the book of John is that the book of John is full of those kinds of interactions. And we, we essentially get a front row seat to Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman today. No one else is around. It's just us peering into this story of Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And so if you recall last week, we talked about last week a guy that interacted with Christ. What was that guy's name? Do you remember? Oh, they should just fire me now. Um, What was his name? Nicodemus? Like one person, remember the guy's name. All right, the whole story was about Nicodemus. And um, we talked about Nicodemus last week, and Nicodemus was what kind of a guy? He was a Pharisee. Um, He was a put-together church guy. He was the religious elite. He was um, the, the most moral of moral people. He was educated. He was upper class. He was moral. He followed all the rules. He was the elite of the elite. And the story we're going to look at today is Jesus reaches out to someone who is the complete opposite of those things. This is a woman. It's a Samaritan woman at that. She is living an immoral lifestyle. She is poor, most likely. She is um, a completely different kind of person than we saw Christ interact with last week. And here's the coolest part about this part of the story, is that I think Jesus, right out of the gate in John 4, Jesus uh, goes to Nicodemus, the religious elite, on the one end of the spectrum. The next chapter, chapter 4, he goes to this poor, immoral, Samaritan woman and reaches out to her. And it's like he gets this guy on this side of the spectrum, this girl on this side of the spectrum, and it's like he's announcing to the world that I'm here to save everyone. The religious elite and the immoral girl at the well and I'm, I'm here to save both of those kinds of people and everyone in between, right? I think it is so cool how Jesus uh, reaches out to this one guy first and then the exact opposite kind of person in John chapter 4. So look with me at John 4, uh, verse 1 in your Bibles. And it says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So Jesus hears about the Pharisees. The Pharisees learned, the religious elite learned that Jesus was baptizing more people than John the Baptist was, and he knew they'd cause some conflict with that. So Jesus decides, I'm just going to back away, walk away, and go somewhere else. So the Pharisees can't use that against me. And so he decides to, um, but here's the, here's the interesting thing, though. It says that Jesus was not baptizing, but who was baptizing? Who was? The disciples were, right? So what you see at the very beginning of the story is that Jesus is doing what? He's already delegating ministry. Like, he just started doing ministry, and he's already delegating ministry to other people, to the disciples, And this is important because this is the exact same reason why we delegate ministry to you guys. This is why we do things like impact, why we do things like mission trips, why we do things like uh, many of you guys take take it upon yourself to go and minister at places like Jonathan Moore Apartments and Ralph Wilson Youth Club and BCYC and Canyon Creek Townhomes. And I love that because you are taking ownership of ministry. And this is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus 
he, he would, if there was anything the disciples could do, he would let them do it. Even healing at certain points. I mean, he's God. He's perfect. He could be like, you guys are going to screw this up if I let you heal somebody, right? But he decides to even delegate some of those things to let them do ministry and make himself kind of in the background, which is an amazing um, act of service. So I want to show you um, the area Christ is walking through. It says he had to pass through Samaria to get to where he's going. So he's coming, he's coming from, he is coming uh, left Judea and, again, and departed again for Galilee. So Jesus is about to leave from the south here and head north, and he's got to go through Samaria to get there. And if you don't know what, uh, why this is important, I'll tell you, Samaria was a place that the Jews hated to travel through. Um, many of them would go out to the east, cross the Jordan River, take the route to the east of Jordan, then head to Galilee from that direction there. They would actually go out of the way to avoid Samaria altogether because they hated the Samaritans so much. The reason why they hated the Samaritans was because in 722 B.C., there was an Assyrian king who invaded Israel, and that king dispersed some of the Jews, and that king also sent other people groups into Israel to intermarry with the uh, Jewish people. And that was a big deal because the Jews thought, as God's chosen people, that they weren't supposed to intermarry. Now, this is not um, the same kind of thing today. If someone marries a different race today, this is not a sinful thing, obviously. Back then, God was worried about um, them worshiping the idols of other nations. That is why he said, don't marry other nations, because you'll worship their idols if you intermarry with them. That was the reason why. And so these Jews... Certain groups of them married other people that were not Jews, did not worship the same gods they worshipped. And so this mixed race group of people became known as Samaritans. And so the Jews and the non-Jews both came to hate Samaritans because of their, um, of their mixed race, their mixed culture, their mixed identity, their mixed religion. And so um, the Jews began to hate them as a result of that. In fact... Uh, the Samaritans, as a result of that rejection, the Samaritans created their own religion. They had their own place of worship on the temple called, their, their own temple on a place called Mount Gerizim. The Jews would worship in Jerusalem only, and the Samaritans would say, well, we're going to worship our own God our own way on a place called Mount Gerizim, and they built their own temple um, as a result of that. They also only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament and uh, rejected everything else that the Jews would read for their scriptures. In fact, they were so hated by the Jews that the word Samaritan became a curse word. If you wanted to offend someone back then, you would call them a Samaritan. They were despised by the Jews. The journey would normally be 130 miles from south to north. So think from here to Dallas. And they would go around on a several-day walk to avoid Samaria. So imagine... You're on foot. You've got to go to Dallas, and you're on foot. Um, you leave Temple, and you just hate people from Waco for whatever reason. And so you decide to walk around Waco and head to Dallas that route. Now think about this. It's really hot outside. You've got to really, truly hate the people in Waco to make that much extra work for yourself, right? So this shows you how much these people despised the Samaritans in their in their culture. Look at verse 5. It says, So he came to a town of Samaria called 
Sakar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, we- Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So obviously today, if you and I want water, we just do this, right? Very simply, we just drink water. Um, You go to the faucet, you turn on the faucet, you have water there magically, right? And so, um, anyone here ever been to a place like Africa where they have to get their own water and, like, carry it on their head sometimes? Okay, one of you has been to Africa. Um, So, um, but in Zimbabwe, Rwanda, places I've been, you'll see women spend, like, half their day taking large jugs to a local well in the city and having to go get water for their family. This is a big ordeal. This is a very inconvenient thing. So, in that day, of course, didn't have running water. They had to go to a well to draw water for the day. And so this woman's doing that um, for herself uh, at this well. So Jesus is sitting at this well. He's already violating cultural norms by talking to a female in public as a rabbi. Now he's talking to a Samaritan female in public, a double whammy, right? This is a big, big deal. And and Jesus is crossing over several barriers to talk to this woman. In fact, um, Tradition says that a rabbi, a teacher of the law, would rarely speak even to his wife or sister in public, let alone another female who's not related to him in public. In fact, um, some Pharisees were so legalistic and so rule-based, what they would do is they would walk, if they're walking through a crowd of people and there's females around, they would literally walk with their head down so they would not look at them, and lust. This is true, all right? In fact, some were actually called um, the bruised and bloodied Pharisees because they would actually walk into walls and trees as a result of this legalism. True story. And so um, this is true. So they'd be so legalistic, they would actually walk like this. Can you imagine that, ladies, if you're walking through school and there's a guy who's like just really legalistic and whatnot, just like, oh, I can't look at you, you know, just walking through you like this, walks like right into his locker, right? And uh, so this would happen, this would happen with some of these Pharisees. And so Jesus is crossing over so many barriers just to speak to this woman at this well. In verse 6, it tells us that um, this is the sixth hour. This does not mean 6 a.m. or 6 p.m. This means 12 noon because the Jewish day started at 6 a.m. And so this is now 12 noon. So we must ask the question, why would this woman, why would she go to the well in the middle of the day? Because this woman is living in sin, she's living in sexual immorality, as we're going to find out in the story a little bit later on, and she's rejected, she's an outcast, not just by the Jews, but by her own people, the Samaritans. And so because of her sin, and because she's an outcast even from her own people, She goes to the well in the middle part of the day, the hottest part of the day, when no one else would be there. Because in that culture, the well was like like a coffee shop, or the well was like a laundromat, where people would hang out and talk and get to know each other. 
and women often drew the water for the family. So this is a place of, to hear the gossip, to hear the, um, the talk of the day. And so these women would probably reject her because of her immorality. And so she is having to go to this well at the heat of the day when no one else is around because she's living in shame. She's an outcast. No one has ever accepted her because of her sin. And so you can imagine um, she wakes up in the morning. She's thirsty. What's the first thing you do in the morning? You drink water, right? And so usually, and so, okay, um, so the first thing you normally do is you drink, you're, you're thirsty, right? And so she waits, and she waits throughout the day. Her tongue's sticking to her mouth. She can't talk right because she's so just parched with thirst. And this woman sets off on her journey to go get water from this well. And you can imagine the hottest part of the day, the sun beating down on her, and as she is just sweating profusely in that dry, arid climate, that she must, like the sweat serves as a reminder of her sin. Like, I'm doing this this time of the day because I'm ashamed, I'm an outcast, and no one else cares about me, no one else wants to be around me. And you can imagine that many days, the sweat would turn to tears, just tears of, of grief and tears of shame and, and tears of, of knowing that no one accepts her, she's an outcast, even in her own society, who are also outcasts, right? And so you can imagine this woman's um, situation. And so Jesus, just set this up, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah that she knows nothing about yet, at least not that this is him, he speaks to her, and he asks a simple question, can I have a drink of water? And look at her first response. It says, how is it that, that you, a Jew, can even speak to me? Her first words are shame, right? Her first words are do you even know who I am? Like, no one talks to me. No one speaks to me. You're, you're a man, you're a rabbi, you're, you're a Jew. Why are you even speaking to me? And so her first words show you where she's at and show you the shame she's in. Look at verse 10. It says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And so just like with Nicodemus, Jesus starts talking like in these weird uh, pictures and saying things like, I'm living water, and, and she's thinking he's talking about the water at the well. And so just like with Nicodemus, Christ is communicating something spiritual with a physical analogy, and she has no idea, just like Nicodemus did, what he's talking about. She does not quite understand what he's saying to her. Look at verse 13. It says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus is using the physical to display the spiritual. And it's like Jesus is saying to her that you're not just physically thirsty when you come to this well. You are spiritually thirsty. And there is a spiritual thirst that I, as God, want to quench in you and want to give you living water for. And so it's like 
Um, we're about to find out that this woman has, has had five um, sexual relationships with five different men. And she's about to admit this to Jesus later on in the story. So we find this out later on. But it's like Jesus is kind of getting at something when he talks about the thirst idea. It's like he's getting at something where he's saying to her, um, you've been trying to quench something in your soul, living in sexual immorality, and I want to tell you that I am the only one who can quench that thirst. I am the only one who can quench your spiritual thirst. It's like that's kind of the direction he's heading in as he uses this picture. She's been doing the same thing with all the men in her life. She's, she's not just physically thirsty. She is spiritually thirsty. And she's been trying to satisfy her spiritual thirst with one guy after another, after another, after another. This is what she's been doing. She's been living her life this way. And Jesus is trying to find his way in and tell her, the, the thirst that you are trying to quench, you're quenching the wrong thirst with the wrong thing. I am living water. I can give, I can quench your spiritual thirst. This, this is what you're really looking for, isn't it? And he's setting himself up as the answer to her dilemma and what she's looking for in her life. She's trying to meet a spiritual need with something physical. And I want you to hear this this morning. I want you to write this down, actually, that most of the time, I'd say all the time, that our sin, any aspect of sin we struggle with, is an attempt to meet a spiritual need with something physical. Like, think of any sin you can think of. It's usually an attempt to meet a spiritual need with something physical, something material. And so you chase after that thing, and you always wonder, why, why am I drawn to these kinds of sins? The answer is because you're trying to satisfy a spiritual thirst, a spiritual need. This woman's been living this way her entire life, most of her life, trying to satisfy a spiritual need with something that's physical. And what the scriptures show us is that sin never satisfies, does it? There's a verse in Ecclesiastes where, where Solomon writes, um, the eye never gets enough of seeing, right? So think of people looking at pornography. It's like, do they look at pornography and go, okay, I've had enough, none for the next 10 years, right? No. The eye never gets enough of seeing. The ear never gets enough of hearing. It's like whenever you have something, you want more, you want more, you want more. This has been her pattern as well. For some of you, this is your pattern with sin, whether it's relations, whether it's pornography, whether it is um, getting into drug use. Like the more you have, the more that you want. And this is a pattern that you find yourself in. And you were trying to meet, listen, you were trying to meet a spiritual thirst, with something physical. And Jesus Christ is the only thing that can quench your spiritual thirst. And this is the message that he's preaching to this woman, but he's doing it in a, ver in a very gentle, lightly confrontational way. And so the question I want to ask you this morning is, do you see Jesus that way? Do you see Jesus as someone who can quench your spiritual thirst? I mean, like when, you, when, you, when you're thirsty for water, you reach for water. It's just a natural thing you reach for. When you're thirsty spiritual, what do you reach for? What are the things that you reach for? Jesus Christ quenches spiritual thirst. Go ahead and do the questions one through four at your tables. Go ahead and discuss.
Okay, I want to make sure we have enough time to get to the, um, the last part of the discussion at the very end. So um, if you look down with me at verse 16, John 4, 16, and we'll continue this story. Uh, so Jesus says to her, he says, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And I love her response. Woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. (laughs) So Jesus looks right into her life and tells her what she's doing. Now, don't you wish you could be like Jesus sometimes in those areas of life? I mean, you wouldn't have any friends, right? But don't you wish sometimes you could look at someone and be like, You are living in sin. Stop doing this, this, and this. They're like, oh, how did you know, right? And so Jesus, he calls out her sin. So she knows right away there's something special about this guy. She knows right away that there's something different about him. But here's what she does when he confronts her sin. She says, I don't have any husbands. I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right, you don't. You've, got, you've had five husbands. And so what does she do there? It's a partial confession, right? It's a partial confession to her sin. This is exactly what you and I do. Whenever we fall into sin, we, we partially, if we're found out, if someone finds us out, we partially confess. We confess just enough to appease them, just to make sure they'll go away, right? And what are we doing there? We're, we're hanging on to our image. We're hanging on to this perception we're trying to create about ourselves. It's like, I'm not as bad as you think I am. And of course, the more questions you ask, the more they divulge. And they, okay, is that all? Is that all you did? Okay, there's one more thing I did, right? And so usually this is what we do. We partially confess sin because we're trying to protect some kind of an image. This woman already knows she's an outcast. Her thought is, if I tell you what I've done, if you know what I've done, there's no way you'd be talking to me right now. Look at verse 20. Here's what she does now. This is very interesting. So her sin is found out, and then this is what she talks about next. Listen. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. What's that sound like? Changing the subject, right? Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now I want you to see this very carefully. Listen. She thinks she's changing the subject, but she's really not, is she? Because what does her sexual lifestyle have to do with worship? The answer is everything. She thinks, okay, this guy knows what I'm about. This guy knows who I am. I'm going to change the subject to a theological discussion about where the temple should be located, right? And Jesus is saying to her, 
in a way, yes, this whole thing is about worship. This whole thing is about worship. In fact, this whole thing is about who you should worship, not where you should worship. And so she thinks she's changing the subject, but Jesus is saying, okay, I'll go there with you. I'll follow that rabbit trail with you. Let's talk about worship. Let's talk about who you're worshiping. And Christ is saying to her that if you really want to worship, you're going to worship, you're going to worship me. That's what he's alluding to. You're going to worship me because I am the Messiah. I'm the one you're talking about. And so this has everything to do with worship. It's like Christ is saying to her, for years you've been worshiping the affection of men, but I want to transform you. I want to make you into a true worshiper. I'm looking for people to worship me, and I'm coming to you through Samaria, and I want you to worship me and not worship these men you've been worshiping throughout your life. And you can imagine that her response, like, wait, you want, you want me to worship you? You want me, a Samaritan, sexually immoral woman, to worship you. Like, you don't want to just, you're not just speaking to me. You actually want me to worship you. You want my worship. And this is the point of this story, I think, is that Jesus, he goes to great lengths to seek out worshipers to worship him. I don't care what past you've had. I don't care what your story is. Jesus wants your worship. He wants to quench your spiritual thirst. But some of you are allowing other kinds of idols, other things that you're worshiping to get in the way of that. And Jesus is saying, I don't care what your story, your background is, but I want you to come and worship me. And so this woman goes and immediately goes back to the town to tell them what happened. And so in verse 39 and 42, it says this. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So the most unlikely person imaginable is the one who gets to lead part of her village to Jesus. This outcast leads other outcasts to Jesus. And many come to know Jesus because of this person's testimony. And I think one of the most powerful things about this whole story is that Jesus pursues even the outcast of all outcasts. The outcast even of the Samaritan people. He uses her. And every response that she utters back to Christ in this conversation indicates her shame. Everything she says back to Christ shows that she is just utterly guilt-ridden, shame-ridden, has no clue why this man wants to talk to her. In the story last week, we saw that Nicodemus needed to be convinced that he was lost, right? He thought he was saved because of who he was, but he needed to be convinced that he needs to be reborn. This woman needs to be convinced that Jesus wants her worship. It's the complete opposite problem. But I want to show you something very quickly, though, is that in a way, both people look like complete opposites, right, on the outside, but they're both playing the same game. They're both playing the works-based salvation game. Here's how. 
the man, Nicodemus, he thinks he's good because he does good things, right? He's playing the works-based salvation game. This woman, she's still playing the same game, but she feels like she's losing at that game. And so because of that, she feels like she's not worthy. How could this man want me? I, I, can't, I can't worship him. Why does he want me? And so Nicodemus thinks that he deserves, she thinks she's undeserving of his grace and mercy. And so in a way, they both look like opposites, but they're playing the exact same game. And Jesus says, no, I've come to save both kinds of people and everyone in between. Everyone in between. Jesus offers both of these people grace because that's what's going to transform both of them. You know, there was a girl, um, I was an intern at a church for several years in Arlington, Texas, and there was a girl, I was an intern in charge of uh, Martin High School in South Arlington. That was my school that I had to reach out to continuously. And there was a girl at that school, she was a sophomore in school, her name was Adrian. And she began coming her sophomore year to our little uh, group that met in a home in South Arlington there. And she came for about eight or nine months. And um, at some point, the youth pastor I work with pulled me aside and said, Dave, I need to talk to you about Adrian." And he sa- I said, what's going on? He said, well, she came to me recently. She came to the youth pastor, and she told him her story. I didn't know her full story. He told, she told him that um, when she was in eighth grade, she got pregnant, and she had twins. And I had known her for almost a year and had no clue this was what she came from, like that she had two babies at home that were almost two years old at this point. And she's a sophomore in high school. And so when I found out, I went to her and I said, well, um, I said, Joe, why did she not want to tell me? And he says, well, she thought that you guys would judge her. And I said, well, let's, let's talk to her about it. Let's, let's discuss this with her. So I pulled her aside one day and I said, hey, listen, and I'm almost in tears, this, like thinking that she's going to think I'm judging her and I'm really nervous about this conversation. I'm thinking that how is she going to respond to me knowing now the truth about her life? And so um, I said to her, I go, look, there's, you're wanting to follow Christ now. Like, there's no shame here. You've repented. Like, you turned from that. And so we want to welcome you with open arms and, and, and love you as best we can. And I said, so how old are your boys? And she said, they're about to turn two. And I said, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to throw your um, boys a two-year-old birthday party. And so on a Wednesday night, instead of having our normal group, we decided to have her bring her two boys, and we decided to have a birthday party for her two, for her two baby boys. That's how we introduced them to the group. And our kids were just, you know, loving these two kids, these, these two babies. These kids were like, they were, they were accepting her, and, and she was just blown away at how they received her. And she kept coming for a while and stayed plugged in. And the reason why we do that as a church is because that's what Jesus would do. That's what he would do. This is what he did with this woman, the Samaritan woman. And so some of you in the room today, you struggle with shame. You feel like there's no way Jesus Christ can love me because of what I've done where I've been. And this story shows that Jesus wants your worship. He wants you to worship him. He wants to quench your spiritual thirst. You've been trying to meet spiritual needs with physical, material things. It's time to stop doing that and meet those needs with Jesus. 
He can be the living water for you. He can be what you need in those areas of your life. There are some of you in the room that you may not be like this woman, but you're, you're the opposite kind of person. You're the kind of person that judges that kind of woman, that kind of person. And you're the self-righteous person like Nicodemus. And Jesus wants to offer you the same grace that he offers this woman. And you are essentially playing the same game as this woman, the works-based salvation game. And Jesus Christ wants you to stop worshiping your image and stop worshiping the material world and worship him. He can be your living water as well. Go ahead and finish with your last few discussion questions.